Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Theft Mart. Our guest today is writer, director, actor, and currently producer, Patrick Lascarbo. He has acted in over 53 yes, uh, yeah, projects. Well, yeah, over 53, because those are the only ones that are on IMDb right now. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, most of your work's been in shorts, and then uh, you've done TV uh, commercials and some movies, mostly independent films. Yep, yes, yes, mostly independent. I haven't done anything uh, uh, big studio yet. And then uh, you came from stage acting, correct? Yes, I, I acted in stage from the age of nine till about three years ago. Three years ago is when I made the transition to film. Uh, and, uh, I had acted, like I said, from nine all the way up to 40, well, I'm 47 now. So out there till 44 was all stage. How was that transition? Was that, was that difficult to do or? Uh, well, it's funny. Um, I thought it was going to be very, very difficult because I have a fairly big personality. I'm a fairly big person. So, I mean, there's, you know, you do bigger things on stage because you're trying to get to the back row on film your back row is right in your face normally. Uh, cause it's just <laughs> put the camera right in your face and go do something, you know? Uh, so it was, it was, a it was a little bit of a transition for me to dumb down basically my, uh, not dumb down, but make them minor. Uh, that little adjustments mean a lot when the, when the lens is right in your face. So it was a, a, a little bit of a transition, but a lot of my teachers, when it came to doing the uh, film stuff, they, they said that they actually prefer to do it the other way around. Cause it's a lot harder to make somebody big than it is to make somebody small. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So they really were like, yeah, I mean, you know, just, you know, think it and it happens so you don't have to make the the gesture you don't have to do this you just have to think it almost and it just it, it'll just occur so they were like it, it's much easier um and then even my stage my, my old stage people were like yeah it's way easier to go to to go to film than it is to go the other way around because when people get used to just talking really lowly and talking like this all the, that then it's hard for them to project to the background it's hard for them to do all that stuff because they think that they're yelling but they're not Oh yeah, <laughs> I could see that. Uh, and this is the the movie um, you're you're trying to get a movie released or put together here. Um, you do have an Indiegogo for it, and we're gonna put the link on our social media for that. Chance and circumstance. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a movie that I wrote. It's my first 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 screenplay that I had written. It started off as just an idea for one scene, basically, and it was Civil War veterans having a PTSD discussion. That's kind of how it started. Oh wow! And then. Yeah, and then uh, I went, well, you know, kind of what happens before this, just so I could give background to the characters and background, you know, for, for when we, if I was going to shoot the short. So I went back to the beginning and wrote kind of what happened before that. I'm like, okay, well, this isn't the end. What happens after this? And I wrote what happened after, and in 48 hours, I had a 126-page screenplay. That's uh, awesome. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, and it was, it, I mean, I, I wrote it, and, uh, and I liked it, and I mean, whenever you write something, you always think it's, it's good, but you got to kind of figure out you know, where your ego is and put that in check. <laughs> Are you a it's big good. history buff yourself? Uh, yeah. The, yeah. I am. I'm a, well, I'm more of, a, more of a world war, more of a world war two history buff, but I do have uh, an affinity for the civil war because, and, and I think the reason that it came about now and the reason that I wrote it right now is because we're kind of facing that in the country right now as a whole, just, it's not with guns and bullets and slavery. It's with, you know, Twitter and Facebook and people just not inviting each other to Thanksgiving dinner anymore. Yeah, I read about the synopsis of the movie, and it sounds like um, you do, you've got a message behind it. You know that I think is going to be very poignant. Uh, you know, I think it'll it'll resonate with a lot of people on that. Yeah, and I mean, it's not a western because people keep saying it's a western. And even when I send it off, they're like, "It's a western." No, it's really a period <laughs> piece. 
it's 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 a period piece that's set in the West. So 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 that's what it is. And basically, the logline of the whole entire movie is is there's two Civil War veterans who were actually um, West Point friends at West Point. They graduated West Point at the same time, and uh, they were friends before the Civil War. The Civil War breaks out, and they end up fighting on opposite sides of the war. Well, at the end of the war, Reconstruction occurs, and they come back together, and to them. Everything's fine. They're like, everything's water under the bridge. You shot at me. I shot at you. We're alive. Everything's good. This is the way we're going to go with the country. But as we all know, some people just didn't quite see it that way. So, (laughs) so yeah, so basically they have to kind of uh, fight something that, uh, that was a specter of their past in the present, if they're ever going to have any kind of future. So, so that was kind of the the basis for the whole entire movie. Really, like I said, it, it, and it started as just a PTSD discussion between the two main characters, and it morphed into this larger, grander scale. Took on a face of its own, evolved a little. Yeah, yeah, it, it just did, you know, because I just kind of saw what was going on in the world today and what's going on in our country as a whole, and understanding that, you know, things happen, but at the end, when everything's said and done, you know, we're all still part of the same team. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome project. It also sounds very ambitious. I was reading about how you'll have to hire uh, animal trainers and working with the horses. Um, have you worked with horses in the past on on film sets or, or any uh, animal have, for that matter? I have yet to. Well, yeah, because humans are animals. I work with them all the time. <laughs> yeah, anyway, <you> <laughs> <laughs> um, humans are sometimes worse than actual animals. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 I, I've, I've been, I did a couple Westerns this past summer, last summer. Um, but I didn't have to ride a horse. I was around horses, but, and I rode horses when I was younger, much younger. So yeah, I had to kind of get back in the saddle, excuse the pun, uh, <laughs> to try and kind of, you know, lear- relearn kind of how to ride. And there's a difference in riding, uh, civil war saddles as opposed to today's saddles. There's a thing called a McCullough saddle. A McCullough saddle doesn't have a horn at all. So when you get up on there, there's a different way to get up and there's a different way to use the, your, your thighs and your, your heels to, to move the horse about. And so I kind of had to get comfortable doing that again. Oh, wow. Uh, so yeah, I spent a weekend up in, uh, Oklahoma, uh, while we were actually location scouting, learning how to re-ride, uh, a McCullough saddle and make it look, you know, normal, make it look uh, uh, effortless because that's the thing, because that was the mode of transportation back then, oh, back yeah. in that day. <laughs> so, I mean, everybody knew how to ride a horse. You know, unlike today where everybody goes like, oh, let's go out and ride a pony. You know, this is not a pony I'm riding. Yeah. This is a full out horse, you know, a couple uh, like 14 hand high horse that, you know, it has a brain of its own. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so it was, it was, it was a learning experience. And the other thing I had to learn too, because my character uh, uh, drives a, a wagon at one point in time in the, in the film. And I'd never driven a team of horses. So I had to learn how to drive a, a, a two horse team. Oh, and I learned wow. how to do that as well. So, so now I guess there's some stuff I can add to my resume now. Like I know how to drive like, two yeah. female horses. You know, hey, if this uh, acting thing doesn't work out, you know, you can always. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Horses always, carriage you know, rides. Yeah. Ride horses, give carriage rides. I'm good to go. <laughs> You're set for life, man. <laughs> yeah. Is it more complicated to to do the carriage than you would think? Are you were you surprised by well, learning that or? Uh, it's yes and no. Basically it's like a big rig, but the big rig, um, actually has, like I said, a brain, you, you've got, you got a couple of tons of horse there and they've got their <laughs> own ideas of what they want to do sometimes. But the difference between riding a horse versus driving a team is basically when you're riding a horse, you kick with your left heel or you nudge with your left heel to get the horse to go right. You nudge with your right heel to get the horse to go left with a carriage. It's completely different. You're actually using the reins almost like a steering wheel. Huh. So when you're going right, you're actually going right. So you pull a little bit on the right rein, but you leave the, the and let the left lane 
or the left rein, I should say, go as the horse kind of starts to turn. And then you've got to walk yourself up the reins and then get back to your set position. So it's a little bit of uh, dexterity that's involved in it. And then knowing how to turn, you know, uh, a wagon as opposed to, because trust me, it doesn't have rack and pinion steering. So, I mean, you've got to, <laughs> yeah. you've got to, you got to, you got to really, you know, okay, I've got to look at my uh, area ahead and that's where I need to start turning, you know, so things like that, you know, which again, I think you do the big rig when you, when you turn a big rig, oh, you yeah. know, you look where, where I've got to turn and then you turn there. Unlike with a car where you just, ah, I'm going to turn, you know, <laughs> so a little bit of planning goes into it. So I wouldn't say it was more, more difficult. It's just more things to think about while you're doing it. Do you have a kind of a greater appreciation after doing that for kind of what these, oh, yeah. you know, this time set and the characters went through? And Oh, yeah. I mean, awesome. uh, first of all, I mean, if you just think about it from a from a time perspective, you know, right now, if I drive to, to Dallas because I have an audition, I drive to Dallas, it's three hours up, three hours back. Back then, if I had to go to Dallas or something, it was like two, three days up, two, three <laughs> yeah. days back. You know, so, I mean, uh, that's, you know, I have a greater appreciation for, you know, the, the time that these guys spent in the saddle, the, the planning kind of that had to go into something. Cause you didn't want to go to Dallas and then forget something and come all the way back home. and like, Oh, I forgot it. I can't just turn around and go back. Like, Oh, I got to spend another week on the road now to go as opposed to I got to spend six hours. Yeah. You've got a pretty wide range, you know, and I've, I've seen you've done a lot of different things from doctors, cops, uh, with your on screen, yeah. on screen career. Uh, do you have like a favorite character or a, you know, a genre of character that you enjoy playing? Oh, wow. You know, I always, I get typecast as the dad or the quirky neighbor all the time. So, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the one thing I kind of don't like as much. I mean, they're fun roles to play, but it's not like I'm stretching myself to me. It's not really a, a work to me. It's just like, Oh, cause I have six daughters. So when I play the dad, I'm like, that's not a problem. Got <laughs> there you go. Yeah. It's not a big deal. <laughs> you know, this is, this is easy. Okay. So I gotta be mad. I gotta be happy. What I gotta be. You know, um, what I really like playing to be, I love playing the villain. I love playing <laughs> the bad guy because the bad guys, everyone is, Oh, the person's so bad. The person is so evil. Yeah. But there's a lot of work that goes into playing a bad guy the right way. Oh yeah. You know, and it's just a ton of work. Like take Alan Rickman, you know, I mean, he's phenomenal as a bad guy, you oh, know, there's some people are just yeah. always going to be bad guys, you know, Hans Gruber. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hans Gruber, man. And professor Snape. Yeah. But professor Snape was a bad guy, but he had a good guy turn at the end, you know, so yeah. I mean, there's all these layers that you got to put into a bad guy where, um, the good guy's got layers too, but it's just not as layered in my opinion. It's just not as challenging to me. The bad guys are always challenging and fun to do to find out, you know, exactly how, how deliciously evil can I be, you know, <laughs> before, before it becomes like a caricature. Oh yeah. Do you have a favorite actor yourself or uh, somebody, somebody that you like, maybe Alan Rickman or. Yeah. A couple of my favorite actors actually, uh, I have a couple like for comedy. I mean, actually for all around acting as a whole, I mean, and, and people are going to be like, what? Robin Williams, Robin Williams oh, was fantastic. a phenomenal talent. I mean, he could go from, you know, being as quirky, weird Mrs. Doubtfire person to being, you know, Dead Poet Society. And the range that he had was just phenomenal. Yeah. Just a phenomenal range. Um, and then if you're going to look at like, uh, uh, if you look at um, uh, old, older actors, I love Dabney Coleman. Dabney Coleman doesn't get a lot of credit, but Dabney Coleman was awesome. I mean, he could play just about, he was in nine to five. He was in war games. He was in Coke oh, okay. Dagger. Yeah. You know, he was in all the, and he, again, you, you don't recognize him. You're like, oh yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that guy. <laughs> he got work. 
all the time. He was always getting work and he was always, you know, a different character each time. So I just, uh, I, I just love that about, you know, him. As a matter of fact, he's the reason I started acting. I was watching war games when I was a kid. I was about, I want to say 12 years old, I think. I might have been 12. And he did this thing in war games where, and this is what started me smoking. So kids don't watch war games. <laughs> don't but watch anyway, war games, yeah. <laughs> don't, go, don't watch war games. Um, but he, uh, he was uh, sitting across from Matthew Broderick, who, by the way, is another phenomenal actor. Yeah. Sitting across from Matthew Broderick, and he, he, he inhales a cigarette, delivers his line, and then exhales the smoke. And I'm like, well, I want to be an actor. I'm going to have to learn how to do that. Yeah. You know, so... So I had never smoked before in my life. I stole two cool 100 menthols out of my grandmother's little snap purse. They had them back in the day, a little snap thing. Went out to the back shed and I said, okay, I'm going to learn. So I tried to learn how to the first cigarette, didn't take it out every single time. And then I was like, well, maybe I got to inhale this. So I inhaled it. And after I coughed up a lung, you know, uh, 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 after the first inhale, by the second, uh, I got it down. I'm like, okay, I got that down so I can be an actor now. But then I, I haven't stopped smoking since. But anyway, <laughs> really makes but, you wonder yeah. if uh, if he had to do multiple takes of that, you know, <laughs> as long as we're yeah, just on yeah, fire. I wonder, yeah. yeah, sometimes I wonder that because I've been on some sets. It's funny you say that. It's funny because I've been on some sets with some some Academy Award winning actors and some 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 very big names. And I sit there and I always pride myself on knowing all of my lines and being one hundred percent prepared, so we don't have to do too many takes and whatnot. And I've been on some sets with some very high dollar actors and like, they're like, ah, can we, I need my, what's my line? And I'm like, you get to say what's your line. You're getting paid millions of dollars. I understand that if I say what's my line, because I'm a plebeian at this point in time, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a B movie actor at this point. I'm like, okay. So even when you get to the big leagues, you can ask for a line. Cool. Yeah, I don't go. feel so bad anymore. All right. Hire somebody to follow you around with your script. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. I'm like, all right. Yeah, I can ask for lines when I'm paying, getting paid a million dollars. All right, great. I always like the uh, the idea of the understudy to you know to fill in for your you know on the on the B days and stuff. But if you don't want to, yeah, be there. yeah. Well, well, I have a yeah. Well, you, you say that I have a very good friend. His name is Mike Rademacher. He's actually going to be part of our our, our film, and he was the stand-in for John Goodman for a number of years. Oh he wow, was the, he was second unit for John Goodman. And, uh, and, and, and he was like on arachnophobia and a couple other, uh, uh, films that John did. And, uh, and, and he was, I was like, yeah, the easiest money I ever made. Just like, go stand out there, stand out there, get the lights put on me or whatnot. You know, I didn't have to know any of the lines or whatnot. I would just say this and they would tell me to move this way or move that way. And then they go, okay, second unit out, first unit in. And then comes John and I go sit in his, said I would sit in John's trailer while he was on set. Wow. <laughs> You know, he's got to sit in, you know, live the life, you know, drive his yeah, cars, you know, eat yeah. his food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, he's not there, like, wow, so. cool. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe standing's the place to go. Maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's where the money and the fun is at. Yeah, there you go. Do you have a, uh, a favorite uh, theater project coming from a theater background that you've worked on or been a part of? Yeah, I think my favorite theater project ever, and it ended up becoming a movie recently with Mark Ruffalo, was um, I was in a production of The Normal Heart which uh, Barbara Streisand bought the rights from the play and then made it into a movie for the beginning of the AIDS crisis in the eighties. Oh, and um, yeah. And it was, it was a, it was a great, great play. And I got to play the role of Ned Weeks, which is a lead character. And the funny thing about that is it's a a very homosexual oriented play. Almost everybody in the, in the play is, is, is homosexual except for like, I think the female doctor. And I was doing the play and I was the only straight guy in the whole entire cast. (laughs) <laughs> and 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 I had to do a kiss, uh, a stage kiss with a guy. Now, I mean, 
uh, face kiss with a girl. Cool. No problem. I got no, <laughs> got no problems with that whatsoever, but I had to work myself up to do that. So that was something that was, that was rewarding. And it was a great play. It was just a phenomenal play about how in the eighties kind of, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the administer, current administration, which was uh, Ronald Reagan, I believe at the time, they kind of swept all this AIDS stuff under the rug, you know, and they just oh, kind of yeah. blamed it on the gay community as a whole. And the funny thing was, is that, I mean, it takes that into account. It takes into account how, you know, uh, everybody just, you know, wanted the, the AIDS epidemic to go away. I don't kind of like the coronavirus now. We just kind of wanted <laughs> yeah. to go away, but, uh, but it wasn't going away, you know, and the more they swept it under the rug, the worse it got. You know, until they finally decided that, okay, we're going to work with the French and we're going to work with the, with the World Health Organization and we're going to get this figured out. What did you uh, like most about that? Did you like the message of the play or uh, the. Yeah, know, yeah. I, I, I love the message of the play and the complexity of the character because Ned Weeks in the beginning, kind of what gay culture has become. You know, he, he talks about all these guys in his Brooks Brothers suits and, you know, the, the predominantly like the, the, the what, what, what is it? Oh, what is, I'm trying to remember the exact word he uses. Something like the, the, these flamers, basically. You know, he talks about how mm-hmm. you know you can be gay and you don't have to be like this. You know, oh, wow. and 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 like I said, he kind of hates himself because because he's gay and he feels that now though that he's come to grips with his homosexuality, now everything to him is a war. It, it just makes huh. everything into a war. And everybody and, he, and and even though you know he's he's trying to 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 ring the bell of of you know uh, of alarm for this AIDS crisis. You know, he just does it in such a confrontational way. And the funny thing is that all of his friends and all the people who are with him at the beginning slowly start to like proceed from him and go like, look, you've got to go about this a different way. You know, you've got to figure out a different way to talk about this. Wow. And his lover, Felix, is the only person who sees him for stuff and really stands by him, but still tells him the same thing. Like, you need to stop fighting all of this. Uh-huh. You need to accept what you can accomplish and and take that as a win and then move forward instead of just going for absolutely everything hell-bent and it's all or nothing. You've got to stop this all or nothing mentality. And Ned's idea, Ned Weeks's idea is it is all or nothing because this is life or death. AIDS is life or death. It's all or it's nothing. We either fix it or everybody dies. You know, and, oh, that, yeah. and he sees basically the, the, the virus, he sees the disease as culture or the world as a whole trying to stop him from doing what he's doing, you know, mm. but then he has to come to grips with the realization that, you know what, there are wins to be had here, you know, and, and the win that he can get the biggest win for him is the fact that his, his lover Felix, who ends up dying by the way, by the end of the play, his lover Felix has accepted him for who he is and has allowed him to accept himself for who he is. Oh, wow. It so sounds really whole, powerful. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole character arc for that that is just phenomenal. And that's what I really loved about the play is that there's a, a, a very human and visceral character arc that was based in something that actually happened. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, even so many years after the epidemic and stuff, I, I think we will still continue to see how much of an impact that had on, you know, culture in America. And there, and I think there are a lot of things that have been swept under the rug with it, you know, that uh, we, we still don't understand the gravity of it to this day. Yeah. I mean, and a great, great you want us to watch the movie. Like I said, Mark Ruffalo played Ned Weeks in it. um, And uh, Jim Parsons uh, played uh, the character of Mickey, which was one of my favorite characters. I couldn't be, I couldn't be Ned. I wanted to be Mickey. And I got to play (laughs) the part of Mickey in, in in another 
uh, iteration of the play. Uh, after I had been Ned Weeks, I got to play that part as well uh, for somebody else uh, in another state. But uh, but they were like my two favorite characters. You know, were Mickey and Ned. And Mickey's not a huge part of the uh, of the of the play, but he's got some very integral emotional scenes, and I just love that. You know about the, and Jim Parsons did a phenomenal job. Uh, I think Ian Sir Ian McKellen was actually in the movie as well. Um, with oh, wow. uh, that uh, b- b- that Barbara Streisand. Yeah, it was an all star cast. It was on HBO, huh. and uh, it didn't go to it didn't go to theaters. It was direct to HBO, I think. But it was just incredible. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I'm gonna. I will definitely check that out. Within uh, working with on stage and stuff, you've also picked up. Uh, you're you're quite the prop designer, from what I understand. The, yeah, yeah. There's cool. basically uh, I'm I'm a problem solver. Is what I what I put it, <laughs> what I really think about it. That's that, a great way to put that. To, yeah. Yeah, we get to a spot and we're like, we need this, and I'm like, well, do we need this or can we do with this, this, and this? And I kind of cobble this together, and this will work. Yeah, that works. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Have you always so, been? I mean, I, kind of a handy mentality or is that something you picked up through theater? No, I've always been, my grandfather was a carpenter for years. He was a, and I, I picked up a lot of carpentry skills from him. And then my other grandfather was a Chevy mechanic for 40 years. Oh wow! So I picked up a lot of stuff from them, just, you know, how to cobble stuff together and make things work when you don't have everything that you need, make it look like it's going to work for now. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Do you have a, uh, sorry to jump back here again on the kind of talking about film and theater and stuff. Are there any particular oh. movies like top five that have inspired you that, that made you want to write a movie or made you want to become an actor? I mean, other than the, you talked about war games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I think, I think, uh, the, what made me want to become an actor. That's, I mean, I get that question a lot. I, it actually was all for a girl when it started, but that's, that's a, that was when I was in that's grade school. That's how it school, goes, you know? <laughs> that's always how it goes. Yeah, there was, there was a, a, a Christmas pageant at a parochial school that I was going to. For those of you who don't know what parochial school means, it's a Catholic school. And I got expelled from the Catholic school, so that's a whole other story. But anyway, <laughs> um, there was a girl there, and she was reading for the part of Mary. And we knew she was going to get the part of Mary because her name was Mary, so it was kind of like typecasting. <laughs> and, uh, and I really was sweet on this girl. And I was like, oh, I want to be Josephine if she's going to be Mary. And so I, I, you know, memorized it and memorized it and I, I delivered it for the thing. And I got the part of, part of Joseph. And, uh, and that was the first time I decided that, you know, after I did that, I was like, wow, this is fun. This is a lot of fun. So I really wanted to do it. And then I just kind of came to the realization that I had a knack for memorization. Uh, and I don't know Very where cool. it comes from. I have no clue. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but I just have a knack for memorization. And we were doing another play, I want to say three or four years later, and we were doing the story of Job. And we were doing the story of Job, and the person who was supposed to play the devil didn't show up. I don't know what happened. I don't know if he was sick or he called him, but they had nobody to play the devil. And really quickly, and here's their problem solver in me, I think I was, I might have been 11. I might have been 10 or 11 at the time. I said, well, I know all the devil's lines, because I was playing Job. And uh, oh, they're yeah. like, yeah, but, and they were like, yeah, but, but you're Job. I'm like, yeah, but Job and the devil never show up in the same scene. And they're like, what? And they started looking and they're like, well, you're right. Job and the devil never do show up in the same scene. I'm like, I could be both. I'll just change into the devil costume and then I'll change into the Job costume and lay in the dung heap and, oh, wow. and do that and whatnot. And, 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 and I did it, you know, and then, and then everyone was like, you should do this. You should. So I, I you know, I, I started watching stuff and reading stuff. And, and uh, I think the movie the movie that really made me want to become an actor as a whole is going to be on the waterfront. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Marlon Brando, 
it was just a, a phenomenal, a phenomenal movie. Just with the tons of range of emotion and everything. But you know, I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. You know that whole that whole that whole thing. And I was just like, wow, this is great. The other one. Other than that, and it's another fighting movie, was Raging Bull. Watching Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci in Raging Bull. Oh, I was yeah. like, this, this is awesome. You know, <laughs> this is awesome. This is, this is what I want to do. You know, and, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. Do you, have you ever done any sort of like one-man productions or monologue sets within theater? Uh, you know, having done that uh, where you played the, both roles, you know? Uh, no, I've never done a one man show. I did do stand up comedy for a while, but that's scary as hell. And I never <laughs> want to do that ever again. Yeah. Uh, blame failure on anybody else but myself. So that's why I do not, I never want to do stand up comedy ever again. Um, but no, I've never done like a one man show. I've done, we did a thing in Vermont. When I lived in Vermont called feast of Shakespeare. And they did all these, the, the, the very famous scenes from every, every Shakespearean play like Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, um, um, uh, King Lear, uh, uh, Henry V. And I actually I ended up being like the lead, like in all, I played Hamlet. I played Henry V. I played like in all the their big scenes. I was basically the, the main person when it came to a guy doing a monologue. It was me. That's awesome. You know, so, so that's the closest I've ever come to doing a one man show. I was in the show and I, and I was basically every lead Shakespearean part. <laughs> <laughs> This is your first screenplay that you've written. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe like the creative process on that and what it was like uh, for you to do that. Have you written other screenplays? I know you said this is the first one that you're trying to get uh, made as a movie. No, this is the first. This is literally the first screenplay. Uh, I had never written anything. I had the idea for this years and years and years and years and years ago. Uh, My grandfather was a huge Western buff. He loved Westerns. And every Saturday used to be like Western Day. We would watch every single Western that was on TV. Before, by the way, there was like 9,000 channels with nothing on. Uh, But we would would sit there and we would watch it just, you know, all day Saturday. And um, my grandfather, having never, by the way, he was not from the South. I'm not from the South. He was from Yonkers, New York. That's where he was (laughs) born. Um, And I was born in North Adams, Massachusetts. Oh, But uh, he, he just loved Westerns. He loved the grit and the pageantry and the, and the, the, the honor and the dignity that a lot of the Westerns portrayed. Um, cause he was a world war two veteran and my great grandfather was a world war one veteran and he just loved those movies. So I, I had an affinity for, for that genre as a whole. And then I was acting and I'm like, man, I gotta be in a Western. I gotta be in a Western. I just, you know, kind of, <laughs> To, to pay homage to, you know, my grandfather yeah. and all the Westerns that he loved, you know? So finally I got a chance to be in one Western and I was in a Western called Showdown at the Brazos. And, uh, I, I got to play kind of a, 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 a bad guy in that. Not, not, a, not, not like the main bad guy, but he was a member of this, this really horrible gang in the town. And I did that. And I was like, wow, this was fun. And then somebody else called me up and said, Hey, I saw you on the set for this could you read this short for me? And it was another uh, Western. I was like, yeah, it looks great. He goes, great. Because I want you to be the lead character in the short. And I was like, okay. So I did, so I did that one. And then somebody else said, I saw you on this set and I have a spot that I need filled. Could you read this part for me real quick? So I read the part and I was like, yeah, we want you. So I started doing, I'm like, wow, I I wanted to do one Western and now I've done three. Okay, cool. (laughs) And it started, and it started getting me back into the, 
mindset of, you know, I remember sitting down with my grandfather, I remember watching all the Westerns and just seeing kind of what was going on today. And I was like, you know, this would work perfect in a Western setting. This That's would awesome. just work perfectly. <laughs> and especially Reconstruction. And the reason I picked Reconstruction, because it's a Reconstruction era period piece, is because that's that's probably the, the roughest time our country's ever had, in my opinion. I mean, you can you can point to the Revolutionary War and you can point to the Civil Rights Movement, but we have never had a harder time, in my opinion, as oh, a yeah. country than when we were basically all killing each other, okay? And <laughs> then we had to put everything down and go like, all right, game's over, time to play nice. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I mean, and I'm like, that's rough. I mean, you look at it, like I said, you look at it now, now it's not bullets, it's a tweet. Or, you know, yeah. me disagreeing with your political point of view and then you decide not to be my friend anymore. You know, nobody's picking up a gun and saying like, nope, you're dead. <laughs> That's not happening now. You know, uh, uh, not not in the scope it was then. I mean, yeah, you have yeah. some things that are happening that are not cool, but I mean, it wasn't happening on the scope that it was then. And like I said, then to come from that, you know, remember, there were rules of engagement. There were literally uh, generals uh, of the South. There was, a, there, was a, there was a president of the Confederacy. It was a whole president, okay, <laughs> that was basically at war with another president of the United States. Yeah. And, 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 and they, were, they were warring with each other. They were basically playing chess with human lives. And then we had to say, game's over. Game's over. <laughs> Everybody I, get along. <laughs> Everybody get along now. You know, yeah, right, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody get along now. You know, and again, that was get along after you shot at someone. Now we've got to get along after you said really nasty things about each other for four years. Oh yeah. You know, not quite as bad, but what it, what it showed me is that, you know what we, and, and it's not our, 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 our founding father's fault. It's not, we just didn't take reconstruction as seriously as I think we needed to as a country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and again, and again, you didn't have like the, the, the advances and, you know, you know, psychology and stuff like that. Like there was some crap that really needed to be worked out real hardcore. That just never <laughs> happened. You know, yeah. nobody sat I'm down with Freud and went, you know, like, ah, I just level, got, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On a psychological level, nobody sat down and went like, well, how did you feel about killing your brother yesterday <laughs> in, the, in the battle of Antietam? Well, I never liked him because he always kept his room a mess. So it was kind of cool. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there, was, there was all this stuff that just never really got settled. And we just said, okay, it's done. It's over with. Let's, again, let's try and sweep it under the rug. Let's just try and not deal with this. It's done. It's over with. Let's not talk about it anymore. Instead of actually talking about it and saying, like, this is what happened. This is what we did. And this is how we're going to make this, this better again. This is how we're going to heal. And I don't think we ever fully healed from that as a country. We never really healed. And I think today it's manifesting again. We never really healed. I could see and that, until, absolutely. And, yeah. yeah, and until you heal, you can't move forward. So we've been treading water, you know, for like oh, 100 yeah. years. You know, we've just been treading water, you know, for over 100 years. Hell, for like oh, 150 years. We've just been treading water. And anytime you ignore something and you tread water long enough, there's a shark. <laughs> okay? And the shark has now come to feed on us. And the shark is not a person. The shark is ourselves and our inability to, to sit down and have civil discourse and have a civil discussion. This is what our forefathers did. Everybody thinks that, you know, when we had the Revolutionary War, it was a kumbaya moment and everybody was happy and everybody agreed on absolutely everything that happened. <laughs> Jefferson and Madison hated each other. <laughs> yeah. They despised each other. Okay, but they could sit down and have a civil conversation about how this country was supposed to move forward. 
Oh okay? yeah. And that is what we have lost. We have lost the ability to look across the aisle, whether you're left, right, doesn't matter. We have lost the ability to look across the aisle and go like, Hey, you know what? I get what you're saying, but I just don't agree. So let's figure out a compromise. Let's yeah. figure out a compromise, you know, until one of us realizes we're wrong. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, I mean, we, we see it every day now too. And, it, and yep. it's, you know, there's more lines of communication to it where before you could kind of bury your hand, head in the sand, but now it's like yeah. every day you're exposed to it. Yeah. Well, you got to think about it. Let's, let's look at the Civil War. Your news cycle was what? You got the newspaper <laughs> once, once a week. And by the way, if you got the newspaper once a week, unless you were living in a populated city, you got that once a week newspaper three weeks after the news had already happened. Oh yeah. Okay. Now our <laughs> news cycle is literally a minute by minute news cycle. Minute it's, by it's minute. Crazy. Let's put it this way. I was on, I was on a set. I was on a set shooting something, and I got a tweet that said Kobe Bryant is dead. Now, okay, Kobe Bryant's helicopter crashed and he died. Back in the day, I wouldn't have found that out for months. I'd be like, yeah. Kobe Bryant's dead. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, oh my, you know, oh, they've already they already had the memorial service for him and everything. Oh, I I would have gone had I known, <laughs> but I live out in the middle of you know, nowhere. And I didn't get the paper for four weeks until after everything had happened. You're lucky to get your mail every day. And yeah. 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 You're lucky to get your mail every day. You you know, let's put it this way. Remember life expectancy. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, let's let's just take that into account. Who lived to 90 years old during the civil war? We'd be old men by old, you know, a civil war standards. Yes. I'd be geriatric. They'd be going like, Hey, he's not dead yet. (laughs) Wow, figure someone would have got him like cholera or dysentery or I don't know, you know, <laughs> bad food. Something would have got him by now. Well, I love the concept of the movie. I'm really looking forward to watching it when it gets, you know, gets made. And you guys get it out there. Um, we're definitely going to try and promote it as much as we can on, you know, your Indiegogo and uh, anything that you have through our social media. It looks fantastic. The, uh, the just the I love the concept of it. And I think it's something that's much needed, you know, and, and I like the idea too, of, you know, it is a period piece in in the old West, you know, and, and the like, I, I miss kind of the idea of, uh, you know, there being I, I wish nowadays, there was almost a renaissance of, you know, period pieces of uh, Westerns, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, it just, it just seemed like there was a golden age of that, you know? Yeah, I think you're starting to see that a little bit. I think it started years ago with Unforgiven, because Unforgiven was phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Okay, it started years ago with that, but it was just a one-off, you know? Like, Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood wanted to make another Western, and he did, and it was great, okay? Then you had the Django Unchained. Now we got Tarantino putting his spin on a Western. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of had a little bit of a revitalization over the past, I want to say, decade of, you know, hey, we can still, there are still stories to be told out of the West. And again, it doesn't have to be the good guy and the bad guy and high noon and everybody rides into town. And what. It doesn't have to be that anymore. The Django and Chain was a perfect example of that where there was a huge story before. There was, now, granted, I, I am not going to have a bloodbath like Tarantino <laughs> had at the end of his film. That is not happening in this film. Who does, though? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, who does? Yeah, yeah. Who, who just, Only Tarantino can make a Western without like a bloodbath yeah. at the end of it. Literally like Kill Bill in the West. <laughs> you know, so I mean, uh, uh, only Tarantino can pull that off. And I was like, yeah. I don't want to do that. And by the way, that costs way too much. Uh, so I was like, well, we're going to have some gunfights, but they're all going to have a very specific meaning when they occur. And, and, cool. and that's one of the things I really tried to do in this in this film is that every time a gun is pulled and a shot is taken, there is a message behind that shot. 
There's a message behind the reason that that person pulled that gun out of their holster. There was a reason that, and, and that's what I really wanted to do because people just think, you know, back in the old West, people just shot each other for nothing. No, I mean, that, that did happen on occasion, mm-hmm. but for the majority of reasons, for the majority of times, I would say there was a distinct reason why that gun got pulled out of its holster. Oh yeah. Something was threatened. Something was threatened. Either, either, your, your manhood, your livelihood, your family, something was threatened. And that's the, that's the thing I wanted to bring to this movie. You know, and I think artistically too, you saying that the, uh, that idea, that concept movies where I've watched, where they, they save those interactions for specific meaning. They seem to have a lot more weight to them. You know, you, you get the message, you feel the message a lot more whenever things like that are, are, you know, they're sparse in between, but when they do hit, it's for a purpose. Exactly. You know, like if you take Unforgiven as a perfect example of that, that very last scene where Clint Eastwood kills uh, Gene Hackman, man, there there is a total message behind that. Oh, yeah. There's a total message behind the way he just walks up and blows little Bill away, <laughs> you know, and just says, says, deserves got nothing to do with it. You know, <laughs> boom. You know, I'm like, damn. That was, that, yeah, that was. That was hardcore because he's basically saying because if deserve had anything to do with it, I'd have been dead years ago. <laughs> deserve ain't got nothing to do with it. <laughs> well, we're coming close to the end. I definitely want to promote Chance and Circumstance. Uh, check out the Indiegogo if you get a chance to. Any way that you can promote it, um, and uh, all of Patrick's other works that are out currently. A couple places I've seen some things on Amazon. Um, I know you have uh, some shorts on YouTube. It looked like in Vimeo. Uh, were there yeah. any, any of those, any of your past works that you'd want to promote? Maybe you could tell our fans how to find those. Yeah. If you go to my YouTube channel, there's a couple comedies on there that I really, really had fun with. One of them is called the bribe. Um, and, and I got to play like just, it's just hysterical. It was like a really, really funny, fun part to play. And then if you go on Amazon, we, this was one of the Westerns I did last summer. It's called in their own words, Billy, the kid in the Lincoln County war. And I got to play a character by the name of James Dolan. So this was based in history. He was a historically accurate person. Very cool. He was, uh, he was the person who basically started the Lincoln County War and basically had Billy the Kid hunted down and killed. Oh, wow. Is, is, is who, who, who I play. And it was cool because it was an interview type thing. So it was kind of like a, a documentary, but not a documentary at the same time. So what they did is they, they, they set it up and, and I had to do all this research on James Dolan and where he came from and kind of how he you know, how people perceived him and stuff like that, because literally, and it's funny because a lot of people don't realize this. None of it is scripted. None of, none of this movie is scripted. Oh, at all. Wow. It was basically the director sitting behind uh, uh, the camera and asking us questions that we had to reply to in character. Wow. <laughs> That's and, awesome. and yeah. And, and like right off the top of our heads, we had to just go boom, you know, go with it. And, 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 and he made a great film out of it, you know, uh, and that was a lot of fun. And that's on Amazon. That's, that's something, but if you look up Patrick uh, on YouTube, in their own words, a bunch of stuff. yes, it's called oh, in their own words, uh, Billy, the kid and the Lincoln County war. Very cool. Very cool. And then Patrick Lasarbo on YouTube. Awesome. Yeah, so you just say I'm the only Patrick Lascarbo on the face of the earth on YouTube. <laughs> so if you type in Patrick Lascarbo, it'll come right up on yeah. YouTube. And then I've got a lot of uh, little shorts that I've done there. Another one of my favorite ones is, is it's uh, actually a uh, it's called Sometimes, and that's on there. Uh, and that's another where I got to play the dad, and that's a real real funny one. That's <laughs> so a lot of my comedy stuff is on is on YouTube. I don't put a lot of my dramatic stuff on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dramatic stuff I kind of save for you know. Uh, uh, a later date and time, I guess. Kind of 
And then, uh, so as we're wrapping up, we do ask our guest uh, the same question at the end of every interview that uh, relates back to the theme of our show, Theft Mart Podcast. Have you ever witnessed, been a part of, or seen some type of theft? Oh my God, witnessed, been a part. Can I plead the fifth on it? No, anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we've had uh, some some people they probably should have. You know, <laughs> I don't know the statute of limitation on the story they gave, but. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give one. 15 years old. I'm 15. No, frig, I'm 14 years old. 14 years old, my parents worked. So so this is theft, but not theft at the same time. So, mm-hmm. so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to precursor this right now. It was theft, but not theft. My parents went, they uh, worked at a, a, an insane asylum, basically, at night. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and uh, well, I knew how to drive already, but I didn't have a license. I didn't even have a permit. And uh, they left the keys to this old 1967 Plymouth Duster with a slant six engine in it, and they left the keys there every single night. Well, I wanted something from the <laughs> store, and I didn't want to have to walk 14 miles to the store to get it. So I'm like, I'm going to drive. It's nighttime. Ain't no cops out. I'm going to drive. <laughs> So I, uh, I basically stole my parents' car. Now the whole, there's not going to be any cops out. Yeah, well, there were. <laughs> and and uh, luckily the cop that pulled us over, pulled me over, was a friend of the family's. So what happened is, you know, I, I got pulled over and I'm like, I'm dead. I'm so dead. I am so dead. I am de- I'm, this is not going to end well at all. I'm going to prison. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to be somebody's little girl in prison. This is not going to work well for me. <laughs> so so uh, I look in my rearview mirror, though, and it's a friend of the family. And I'm like, oh. I'm saved. Wonderful. <laughs> so the, the officer was a state trooper comes up to the, and goes, I see your license and registration. And I told him to F off. Oh, so, wow. uh, <laughs> so he, he, he looks at me and goes like, what are you just, Oh, Patrick. I'm like, yeah, how's it going? He's like, Oh, Hey, not bad. He's like, well, you know, you forgot to put your turn signal on, but you're 14. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah. He goes, you, you, get the hell home. So I got a police escort back home. And uh, to this day, until my parents listen to this podcast, probably, <laughs> they have no idea that this happened because he swore me to secrecy and I swore him to secrecy. So, yes, I have stolen a 1967, or I don't know if it was a 67, but I think it was, a 1967 Plymouth Duster Slant 6, um, and, but I got away with it. Cats out of the bag <laughs> now. <Yeah. laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Great story on that. I was thinking when you were first starting that, that was the start of your next screenplay. You know, my parents worked <laughs> in a sane asylum. It was late. There was a 1967 Plymouth Duster. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It may be now. That may be go. my next screenplay. Thank you so much for joining us today on Theft Mart. Uh, Theft Mart fans, please check out Chance and Circumstance, uh, whatever you can do to help support that film. Check out the Indiegogo any of uh, Patrick's other works that he currently has on Amazon and YouTube. And thank you so much for being on today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good luck. And I hope 2020 is a big year for you. And we hope to have you again on the show sometime. We'll do anytime. Awesome. Thank you. 